Hi, everyone. I'm Lauren Good, senior writer at Wired, and you are listening to Wired's Gadget Lab podcast. Usually I'm joined by Ariel Pardez and Michael Calori, but today we're doing something a little bit different. I'm in New York City this week at Wired's East Coast office and headquarters, and I was chatting with our editor-in-chief, Nick Thompson, who is based in this office when he's not running marathons in Chicago or visiting us in San Francisco. And so I thought it would be fun to bring him on the podcast today, and he's sitting across the table from me right now. Hi, Nick. Hey, Lauren. How are you? I'm good. And I should apologize to the listeners from the get-go. I'm sorry for the downgrade from Mike and Ariel. Well, we'll consider it an upgrade for today. So thank you for joining us. <laughs> Thanks for having me. We have a few things we want to get to today. We're going to talk about everything Google announced earlier this week, which is part of the reason why I'm in town. After that, we'll dig into the public address that Mark Zuckerberg gave just minutes ago, which Nick has been following. And finally, we'll discuss a brand new story in Wired about facial recognition technology in schools. So let's get right to it. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg is doing a live stream on Thursday, which he said would be his most comprehensive take, quote unquote, on freedom of speech to date. And this is happening as we're taping. Uh, so this is kind of our live reaction. And be sure to go to wire.com later where we will have more of a full story. Uh, but Nick, you've been monitoring this. So far, what has Zuckerberg said? Well, he's gone out there and he began with a full-throated defense of free speech and a kind of recasting of Facebook's history as though it was created as a tool to allow people to have the kind of conversations that could have prevented the Iraq war, which was something ongoing when the site was founded. And it's a different history from the ones we've learned before. But credit to Mark Zuckerberg. Free speech is an issue where Silicon Valley has turned its opinion 180 degrees over the last, say, five years, and he's going out there and defending it. Unpack that a little bit. How has Silicon Valley's approach towards freedom of speech changed? So about 10 years ago was the Arab Spring. It was this moment when everybody thought that Silicon Valley was this place that would allow for uncensored conversations that could bring about democracy. And it's not just something from 2009, it's also something people believed in 1989, right? Free speech was famously referred to as the free speech wing of the free speech party. And people in Silicon Valley, for the most part, were close to free speech absolutists. Over the last five years, there's been a readjustment. The trade-off is that freedom of speech is often conflicting with safety. If you allow people to say whatever you want, they will often abuse, distract, manipulate elections, publish misinformation. So over the last few years, there's been a real move to change that absolutism. And you've seen everything from much tighter rules, cracking down on what can be said on platforms, to artificial intelligence systems that automatically search for certain kinds of comments and wipe them off. So the general philosophy of Silicon Valley has changed dramatically. So today, Zuckerberg has done something bold and noble and said, I'm gonna defend this ancient principle. Then the thing that I didn't like quite as much is that the defense was kind of uninteresting, formulaic, and it seemed at times like what he was doing was just packing in a defense of Facebook on every major issue where it has tension into this argument about free speech. Right? Why did he decide to do this today? What is, what is the impetus for this right now? I assume the impetus is the debate that's going on about whether you can post misleading ads on Facebook, right? So Donald Trump had a misleading ad about Joe Biden. Everybody wanted Facebook to take it down. Zuckerberg said, no. Elizabeth Warren then posted an intentionally misleading ad on Facebook, hammered Zuckerberg about it. And so he's getting a lot of heat for 
following principles of free speech and allowing people to say what they want. And I think he's had a conversation and said, should we fight a one-off? Should we try to defend this particular post and talk about the rules categorization? Or should I just go out there and you know speak from my heart about free speech? And they decided the latter. So it sounds like in some ways he is trying to recreate the history of Facebook and as, you know, as it exists as a platform for speech, but he's also preempting what maybe people are anticipating is going to be a pretty feisty election season. It is going to be a lot easier for Facebook if they can just allow all of the politicians to say what they want to say. And if Facebook has to get in the middle and referee what is true, what is not true, who can say what, what goes up, what stays down, the more they have to be that referee, the harder his job becomes. And Facebook is in a situation where no matter what they do, they will get hammered. That is just the public moment that Facebook is in right now. And Zuckerberg is trying to, I suppose, minimize the risks to his company. He's trying to minimize the odds that he alienates the right. This is an important point, which is that a defense of free speech and the argument that you're going to allow things to stay up even if they're false, is effectively a way of saying we will let Donald Trump post what he wants to post. And that is a good position to take if you run a tech company because you do not want the Republicans who control Washington and the Senate, the courts, the executive branch to crack down on you. And so it is true that Zuckerberg believes wholeheartedly in free speech. It is also true that this position aligns him better with the people who have power right now. So it's also true that this position could be seen as a little bit convenient if you wanted to look at it that way. Yes, one could look at it that way. How does this approach differ from what Twitter is currently doing? I think that Twitter has a similar philosophy in that they lean towards free speech. But what's interesting about Twitter is that they're very much going in the other direction, right? They are starting to filter more, censor more. I think you can probably draw a continuum of the different platforms and their takes on this issue. Like The least free speech is probably Instagram, right? Which mm-hmm. was the place that first built these algorithmic filters to knock away unkind commentary. And Pinterest to a point as well. Right. Pinterest, Instagram. Facebook has sort of been in the middle and Twitter I always thought of as the most free speech one. So now maybe Twitter and Facebook are going to pass each other on this continuum as Facebook moves towards openness and Twitter closes down a few things. This also happens to be the second time in, I think, the past couple of weeks that Mark Zuckerberg has made something of a public address. So shortly after The Verge published audio that was leaked by someone at Facebook of some internal meetings they'd had last summer or this past summer, Zuckerberg decided that at the next employee meeting, he was just going to make it all public and he live streamed it. Yeah. What what can we make of Zuckerberg suddenly wanting to interface with the public in these ways? I think it's two two kind of different examples. So the first example, that was kind of like the Jeff Bezos news, right? When you're hit with bad news, just like lean go into back, it. lean into it, right? Uh-huh. Don't dodge, don't be evasive. And I thought it worked for Bezos with the National Enquirer and it worked for Zuckerberg where all this stuff started to come out in the verge and he said, fine, here's a link to the transcript and I'm going to be open. And it seemed, it was like a jujitsu move. Use the strength of your opponent to yourself. But the question of why he wants to make a public address on free speech is a hard one. And I can imagine a lot of debate inside of the Facebook comms committee. There'll be some people who say, it's better for us if he gets out there. If people just knew the real Mark and they believe this, 
people understood the real Mark, they wouldn't think of him as the monstrous Mark that is the public perception. And that is has some truth to it. On the other hand, he's not that good at this. He's really good at certain things. He's really good at product management. He's not that good at public events. He's gotten much better, but it's not his strength to talk philosophically about big ideas in front of a crowd. So you can imagine a bunch of people in the Facebook comms department saying, I don't know, Mark, maybe maybe you don't want to try to match Alexander Hamilton here. Um, but for whatever reason, he's doing it. He's out there. Yeah, it feels like in the past, Zuckerberg would have written a six to 8,000 word screed about this. Now he's saying, I'm just going just gonna to put it out there. Yeah, he, right, he might have made it one of his annual letters, which he gives you a little more chance to edit it. There's a little less, the odds are a little bit lower that something will go wrong as it might go. Though, of course, the irony for a speech about free speech is that nobody's there asking open questions. Like there's not a right. gaggle of reporters who can ask him whatever they want. They're carefully scripted questions coming from students. Right. Or carefully vetted questions. We'll be sure to monitor this. And like I said, we'll have a full story on Wired.com later today. So by the time you listen to this podcast, you're going to want to go to our website. Check it out. Let's move on to Google. On Tuesday, Google had an event in New York City to unveil its new Pixel 4 smartphone. This is Google's answer to high-end phones like the iPhone and Samsung phones. And even though the Pixel hardware line has only been around for a few years and Google only has a sliver of the smartphone market... These new phones are typically considered very good phones. You might even call it the most optimal expression of Android that exists. It starts at $799. It has a better camera, new motion sense gesture controls, which I know Nick is going to want to talk about, and face unlock. Nick, let's get right into it. Yeah. Would you get this new Pixel phone? I was pretty excited. I mean, all I know is your review. And your review made it sound pretty good. Well, it was an early write-up. We haven't published our full review yet. I know, but I trust you. Oh, and thank you. I was taken by both the basic efficiency and all the little things you want and by, as you mentioned, the gesture controls and the idea that I can wave my hand to make a phone call go away or if I used an alarm clock, which I don't because I have children, if I used an alarm clock, being able to put my hand over it to make the alarm stop ringing, those are pretty cool. And I love the auto uh, audio transcription service that's built into it. That actually is one of my new favorite features. Now we are going to be publishing a full review of this early next week. So you're going to have to come back to get our full assessment. There may or may not be an embargo on the review period, so I'd be careful what I talk about here. However, this new audio transcription thing, I mean, it's great. It's great yeah. for journalists. It's I've been using it to record phone calls this week as I'm conducting interviews, and it's, it transcribes everything to text right away, and then it just stores it in my cloud. I have a, I have a question for you. Why does Google make phones? It's a really good question. So Google has been making hardware in some capacity for a while, but in the past they had more explicit partnerships. So they would work with LG or HTC, which Google yeah. ended up acquiring, or Samsung, you know, to make things like the Nexus set-top box, the Nexus handsets, and that sort of thing. But I think at some point along the way, they probably realized that they were sacrificing some element of control over how their software actually worked when they had these partnerships, you know, these manufacturing partnerships. Because if you think about it, if you get another Android phone, even a high-end one, you have to sort of confront that manufacturer's skin. You know, you, there's a Samsung skin over Android on a high-end Samsung, Samsung phone. There is a OnePlus software skin that exists over Android on a OnePlus phone, and on and on and on. And then 
when you think about the partnerships they have with carriers, the carriers often, especially in the United States, they just want to put all this crapware. I mean, it's essentially crapware, all their own apps all over the place on the phone. And I think Google at some point probably realized, I mean, look, at the end of the day, Google makes all of its money off of advertising from you being and its services online. How can it give people the best, you know, sort of sampling of its services when you're connected on mobile? And the way to do that is probably just to build your own handset and say, this is the purest version of Android you could get. Right. And the disadvantage would be, I presume they lose a lot of money on their hardware division, uh, particularly on the phone part of their hardware division. They probably make it up in other parts. You presumably alienate some of the partners, right? Google makes more money if they can get Android onto the whole Samsung line of phones than it's going to make off of its Pixel. And having the Pixel, I would presume, doesn't make Samsung happy. And you run some risk of catastrophic privacy problems that are uncovered in your Pixel phone or extra risk of antitrust violations. I mean, it's just a tricky thing to do. But I suppose they've decided to do it for the reasons you said, and actually it seems like it's working. I think that you bring up a great point, which is that in some ways, as much as Google probably wants to sell its handsets at a much higher volume and be a much more critical player in this market, it almost benefits them in a way to still stay, you know, I, I think they have in a single digit percentage of the total smartphone market worldwide. And that's probably like, I don't even know, it's probably less than 2% of the market. I haven't checked the latest data, but it probably benefits them in some way also to still maintain that small share because they have so many critical partnerships with other manufacturers around the world. Right. Once they go up to 15, then 15%, then if I'm one of those partners, I start spending a lot more time trying to think about building my own operating system. Mm -hmm. It is a really nice phone, though. Now, I did have the opportunity to use this motion sense gesture control, which There's I no know way it works, right? You also talked about in your uh, with your other video series, the most, the important, most interesting thing, in most tech. interesting thing in tech, right? So everybody should go check that out. It's on Nick's Facebook. It's on LinkedIn. And I saw you talking about this. So, uh, so of course, when they show this in demos, it's just it's magical. Right. You know, you, there, there's this great thing where your alarm goes off in the morning and instead of having to reach over and fumble for the phone and touch it, you can just put your hand over it, hover your hand over it, and it silences the alarm. And it goes, don't worry, it goes into snooze by default. And then there, you know, you're listening to Spotify and you're tired of the songs, so you just kind of wave your hand and the next one magically starts playing. When I tried it after the event, during the hands-on period that we typically get after these kinds of things, it didn't always work. I eventually sort of pulled in a Google product manager and said, hey, this isn't working. And then we, he and I went through it a bunch of times and then eventually got it to work. And, um, you know, I was making jokes about like, how many hands have you actually trained this on? Because right. maybe it's my hand, I don't know. Uh, but, you know, it's not perfect yet. And I think there's also like a behavior change that comes with these kinds of things. So we haven't seen yet how useful this is actually going right. to be. My expectation is that it's going to be really fun to use. It's going to be great to experiment with. It's going to bring no efficiency to your life in the next year, or perhaps the next two years. But five years from now, we might be making all kinds of gestures. We might be. And this is another thing that goes back to why is Google making this phone? Well, maybe it doesn't make real financial or business sense at this point in time. But the radars that they put in the phone in order to make this happen actually came out of ATAP. Mm -hmm. It's kind of their Skunk Works lab. And they had been working on this for five years. It's called Project Soli. And so, and I think they have said they're the first ones to ship these kind of miniature, miniaturized radars in a mobile handset. So it also gives them the opportunity to, to experiment with things like this. But that is exactly a large company 
that doesn't depend on this phone being a success, that wants to experiment this phone, that is the recipe for a horrible phone, right? <laughs> is the recipe for everybody with some weird side project jamming it into the phone. And because there's no revenue at stake, the company just accepting it and the phone becoming a monster. And that's not what's happened. So shout out to whoever at Google has rejected all the terrible products that various <laughs> people at Google wanted to jam into that thing. <laughs> all right, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, Nick and I are going to talk about facial recognition technology in schools. A new report in Wired this week from our colleagues Tom Simonite and Greg Barber tells us how facial recognition systems are starting to appear more in public schools and how this technology's usefulness as a potential safety tool can really quickly move into murky territory as schools are using it to enforce other rules or just keep a watchful eye on students or in some cases keep a watchful eye on a volunteer they don't like very much. It's a crazy story. For the story, Tom and Greg identified eight public school systems across the United States in places that ranged from rural areas to giant urban centers. And these schools are now using facial recognition technology. Nick, what are your thoughts on this story? Is this just inevitable? It is inevitable. Um, It is complicated. It is messy. And I maybe have the unpopular position that it might be good. Talk about that. So obviously you have to start with the supposition that the facial recognition works because if it makes lots of errors or if it's unable to identify women or if it's unable to identify people of different races, then it's just a disaster and you shouldn't have it. But if you assume that it works, then there are lots of benefits that could come from it, right? So making sure that the kids are actually in school, right? As a parent who has children who go to school, there is this moment of the handoff where you watch your child go inside the school and then you're next going to see them at 3 o'clock or 3.30 and you worry that they'll leave the school or something will happen in the school, right? It's hard to have the child outside of your circle of protection. And so the school has set up all kinds of things to make sure that the kids are safe, right? And they have people at the doors, they have classrooms, you know, if a student isn't at the class, maybe you get an email. And facial recognition seems like it could possibly if used sensibly by the school, add some extra protection because you would know if a kid leaves, who's left. Or if somebody who shouldn't be at the school has come in, you know who that is. Or if someone has picked up your kid at pickup, you know who that is. Maybe it's somebody who shouldn't have picked up your kid. So there's real benefits that can come from it. And of course, in a country with a plague of school shootings, any tool that can prevent even one of those has done a huge amount of public good. Now, as we've identified in the story, there are a bunch of creepy things that can do be done mm-hmm. with this. And anytime you give a powerful tool to administrators, school officials, the police department, there will be stories about them using it to stalk. There will be stories about them using it to manipulate people, to fire people who shouldn't have been fired. There will be bad stories. And the question is whether the benefits that I've just laid out outweigh the risks. I suppose to make it personal, if you were to say to me, my kid's school is implementing facial recognition technology and you have the one vote that can either block it or let it go ahead, I would probably let it go ahead. 
Would you want to know more about the company or system that's providing the technology? Well, let's put aside the, for the moment that you're you and you're the editor-in-chief of Wired. So naturally, you're going to be curious about this. But right. if you were just a, you know, just a parent, and would you want to know who's providing that technology so you could do your own sort of vetting of that system? Oh, of course. I mean, right. And again, back to my premise, you have to assume that the company providing the software is an honest company. You have to assume that there is control over the privacy settings and that you know the images of your children will not be sold to advertisers at the end of the day for the, you know by the school um, and if those things are happening which are more likely if we don't know who the vendor is and if we mm-hmm. don't have any insights into it yeah then it's awful right i mean you can I mean, like anything that is doing constant surveillance of children has the ability to become a catastrophic privacy violation absolutely so i would want to know who the vendor is i would want to know how the school has implemented it i would want to know the school's privacy policies but assuming rational answers to all of those, give me the final vote, I vote yes. Now, some parents, unsurprisingly, in some school districts have protested this, as Greg and Tom write in the story. In Lockport, New York, a bunch of parents said that this uh, potentially intrusive technology should not be used on children. The district said in response it doesn't intend to watch students. Rather, officials say they want to keep out unwelcome visitors, including suspended students and local sex offenders. So those sound like you know, commendable things to try to do. There's another example in the story of a student who was expelled and then later tried to show up at an, a school event. They were able to spot him on camera and then sort of remove him from the situation. But then there's this other story, right? So there's one city in rural East Texas that is part of, um, you know, it becomes one of the primary examples in Greg and Tom's story. Um, now, in this school system, there's a woman who volunteers with families. It's in Texas City. And she was actually added to the system's watch list by the head of security for the district because she got into an argument with him on the sidelines of a school board meeting. She ended up calling him an asshole. And so he then told her she would be arrested if she returned to school property. And then unbeknownst to her, he added her to this facial recognition watch list, which she didn't find out until Wired informed her. That just seems like an an abuse of power in some way. Right, but that's an abuse of power on the guy. And it's something that is made possible by facial recognition. But he could have abused his power without the new facial recognition system. And so the way to think about a question like that is, are such abuses of power made significantly more likely with facial recognition systems? Probably at the beginning where there's just one guy who knows how to add people to the list, the list isn't public, there isn't a second person looking at the list, probably there's going to be increased examples of that kind of abuse. But I don't think it's innate to facial recognition in schools. There are problems that are innate to facial recognition in schools. The one is privacy and consent. And then you mentioned bias earlier, bias in the data sets that would then inform the technology and make it not work correctly for certain people. Yeah, if indeed that's still a problem with the systems that are being sold if they haven't you know if that if that technological problem that we know existed in the past still exists in the present if so then the system should not be should not be installed but i don't think that that particular example of an abuse of power is innately tied to face recognition technology it's just a new technology that is powerful that one person knows how to use so of course they're going to there will be examples of them abusing it it more speaks to our human nature in a way, right? Right. In, in the same way that sometimes we do terrible things on social media, social media just happens to be the tool. But in reality, humans are probably 
conversing and challenging or difficult ways offline as well as online. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting example because I feel like with social media, there are certain elements of the nature of it, particularly the anonymity, um, the way that screens affect our brains and the modes we go into when we're using them. There are ways that the mediums of social media changes the nature of who we are and what we do. And they probably net-net make us act worse than we do in IRL. And the question would be, with facial recognition software, does its existence make us act like worse people? Does it make us act like better people? I don't know the answer to that. That's a great question. And it's a great point, too. Yeah, you're right, because it is a more ambient sort of system that's mm -hmm. passively existing in the background as we're going about our day. Right. And, you know, there is the, there are lots of questions about cameras in general, right? So does surveillance technology freak us out and make us worse people because we feel like we can't actually show who we are. If we feel like we're constantly being watched, we can't be our authentic selves. That is certainly true. But does the fact that pickup at the front of the school is being recorded, maybe it makes people a little less free, but it also makes it less likely that somebody's going to grab a kid and stick him in the wrong car because they know they'll be tracked. So you have to figure out where these systems exist, who gets access to the feed, what decisions are made off of it. And the hard question will be anticipating how it could be used and how it could change human behavior. It's a fascinating story, and I recommend everybody go to Wired.com. I've probably said that about seven times so far in this podcast. So if you haven't picked up on it yet, you should really go to our website. Go to Wired.com, read our stories. They're great. Uh, we're going to take one more quick break for an ad, and then Nick and I are going to give our recommendations for this week. All right, Nick, what is your recommendation for this week? Our colleague Jason Parham just published a list of the seven essential songs to listen to right now. It's on this website that you've been touting called Wired.com. The actual piece is called The Seven Must-Listen Songs for Autumn, and I've been listening to it on my playlist. There's some not-safe-for-children music, and my children mostly control my Spotify account, so we'll see whether there's any backlash, but who knows. Is this what you're going to listen to while you're running across the Brooklyn Bridge every morning? I usually listen to podcasts when I run across the Brooklyn Bridge every morning, though this week I won't be listening to Gadget Lab. I'll listen to something else in instead. You don't want to hear your own voice while you're running? Absolutely not. Yeah, it's kind of unnerving. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. We, we usually go and listen to this before we publish it just for you know QC, and I, I'm like, oh, God, my voice. But I think that's probably fairly typical. Your voice is great. Uh, well, thank you very much. Uh, so this week I'm recommending another podcast. It's called This Week in Nope. It is hosted by Brian Hecht and Rachel Dodes. Rachel also contributes to Vanity Fair as a writer, so she's in the Condé Nast family here in a way. Uh, this is my third time on their podcast. They tape it out of New York City. It's been around for two years, and it's a fun and funny and completely irreverent look at the week's news. This week, Rachel happened, happened to have an interview with Bill Penzi of Penzi Spice, Penzi Spices or Spice. Um, but we talked about all kinds of things. We talked about the debates this week. We talked about Ronan Farrow's new book. I talked about the column I wrote for Wired.com last week about Andy Rubin. Oh, I talked about, of course, Succession and my obsession with Kendall Roy's move in the season two finale big fan of Kendall Roy. I don't know what that says about me. So yeah, uh, but go listen to This Week and Nope if you have the chance. And that's my recommendation. Nick, thank you so much again for joining me on this week's show. It was really fun. Yeah, it was really fun. I, I love doing this with you, Lauren. Thank you. I'm going to have to come back to New York and, and uh, throw you into the podcast studio here more frequently. <laughs> That's great. It's Nick, tell studio. people where they can find you on Twitter. 
I'm at nxthompson at Twitter. What does X stand for? It stands for a letter that nobody else had put between N and Thompson in their Twitter account. Okay, so that's not actually, it's not a middle name. It's just... My middle middle initials, I have two, are E and S, which sound kind of like X, and I started using NX Thompson a long time ago because those accounts are open. So I'm NX Thompson basically everywhere. That sounds great. Yeah. I'm at Lauren Good with an E at the end. Our usual hosts, Michael Calore and Ariel Pardez, can be found at their respective handles. Michael Calore is at SnackFight, and Ariel is at Pardesoteric. Also, you can just bling our main hotline. Hit us up. Give us some feedback. Let us know what you like, what you didn't like. Tell, you know, Nick, you want to see him back on the show at Gadget Lab. That's our main Twitter handle. Thank you again for listening. And we'll be back next week. Hi, everyone. Michael from Gadget Lab here. I want to tell you about our friends over at The Big Take Podcast from Bloomberg News. Each weekday, they bring you one important story from their global newsroom, like how AI will upend your life, or why China's targeting the US dollar, and maybe how Joe Biden plans to take on Donald Trump. Oh boy. Check out The Big Take, a daily podcast from Bloomberg, wherever you listen.